Good morning. You doing all right? I want to welcome you to worship. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. I also want to say hi to everybody who's watching online. I know with people traveling for the holidays, many of you in your PJs right now, and the rest of us are jealous. Can I get amen? Anybody's pants a little tighter this week than they were last week? It's a good turkey day for you. You know, it's a season in which we, we spend a little extra time reflecting on what we're grateful for, right? And I, I mean this. This is not me just buttering you up. Maybe it is a little bit, but it's also really true. You know, as I spent time reflecting over the weekend, what I am grateful for, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude to be a part of, of this community. I know I've had a chance to share a bit of my wife and I's story and, and sort of how we were able to, to kind of come back here, but y'all just need to know it was, it was years of praying and, and longing, hoping to be a part of what we believe God is doing in this place, and God's doing amazing things in this place. And so I just want to say thank you. I thank you so much for the way that you've welcomed us. It's hard to believe it's been like two and a half years already, but, but it, it's home for us. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, there are a couple of things in my life that I am, I'm fine with, with openly bragging about them, right? And one of those things is, is how I proposed to my wife, Lindsay Grace Cunningham. See, we, we had to go about things a little backwards. We were living in South Carolina, but I had just accepted a position at a church in Ohio. And so because of the move, we had to work out some of the details for a wedding uh, b- b- beforehand. So my wife actually, she had her dress picked out. She had a day on the calendar before she had a ring on her finger, right? That's an awkward wedding dress shopping experience, right? She's in there trying on dresses and the lady's like, you yeah, have a ring on your finger. What's up with this, right? So, uh, you know, and, and I knew, I knew that I wanted to propose to her right outside of one of our favorite coffee shops in Greenville. We spent a lot of time in Greenville together while we were dating, and, and most of our dates would end up at this coffee shop. And, and I'll be honest, there was a night when I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her, and it was in, in that coffee shop. And so I wanted to propose to her uh, out, out in front of there, but I had to think of a way to get her there without being suspicious, right? Be, because my wife knew that we were, she had a date on the calendar, like right? she knew this was coming. And, and the thing is that that takes away the element of surprise. Wouldn't you agree? But see, Lindsay loves surprises. Like more than anybody I know, she loves surprises. So I had to think of a way to get her up to Greenville without her being suspicious. And so I told her that a friend of ours who who was living in Charlotte was going to be in Greenville and asked if we could meet uh, he and his wife there because he had a gift that he wanted to give me before I left town. All right, so that's why we were going up to Greenville. And I'll be be honest, at first, I I don't think she was buying it. She was a little suspicious. And so... My friend actually sent her an email that I wrote. (laughs) He just sent it from his account and and told her that, you know, don't let Nick back out of this, whatever you do, because I actually got a copy of his favorite book autographed by the author, and I'm going to give it to him before before he leaves town. And so so Lindsay thinks she's pulling a fast one on me the whole time. And I'm like hamming it up. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm not really feeling good. I don't know if I want to go. She's like, we got to go. We got to go. And so we end up in Greenville in front of the coffee shop and we're out there waiting on, on my friend to show up when, when this couple walks up and, and the girl goes down into the coffee shop and the guy starts looking around and he sees Lindsay and he walks up to her and he says, hi, uh, I know this is, this is a little weird, a little strange, but when my girlfriend comes up out of the coffee shop, I'm going to actually propose to her. And so I was wondering if you would do me a favor. Would you take pictures for me? And so Lindsay's like, of course, you know, I would love to. And, and this is back in the day before cell phones had like great cameras on it, right? So he hands her a disposable camera. Remember those, like the little wheel on it? It's like click, dirt, 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 click. Remember those? Anybody remember that? Yes. They're, they're antiques now. You can buy them in uh, really expensive 
Never mind. That's a bad joke. But um, So the girl walks out, and the guy drops down on one knee, starts saying all these really nice things, and Lindsay's clicking and wheeling away. Click, click, click. She's loving every second of it. About halfway through this proposal, the guy stops. And he turns around, and he looks at Lindsay. He's like, something's not right. And she was, what are you talking about? I thought she was going like, to throat punch the guy. I'm like, don't ruin this. You know? And she's like, we turn around, finish. And he's like, yeah, so, something's not right. See, I think I need the camera, and you need to turn around. So when she turned around, there I was on one knee. Booyah! Right? Yeah, that's pretty good, right? And what's great is I had one of her good friends who's a photographer. She was across the street the whole time taking pictures. And so I got, I got pictures of her face. Check these out. Look at this. Look at that face. That top face. Look at that. That is surprise. I mean, she was just screaming, hollering. I don't remember what I said to her or what she said back to me. Apparently she said yes. I don't really know, but... When she, she hugged me and, and squeezed me and opened her eyes, and a bunch of her friends and family were in various places all around the street watching the whole thing happen, and they come running out, and we got dessert. It was a fantastic night. I think you all would agree if I said that it's hard to beat a really great surprise. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's, that's a big part of what makes this time of the year so great, isn't it? So that anticipation towards all those surprises that we know are only a few weeks away. Now, there are two types of people in the world as it relates to a surprise. Some of you in this room, like my wife, will do whatever it takes to not ruin a surprise, right? Like for you, you don't want to know. If there's a present under the tree, you don't want to know what it is, right? You know it's for you, but you don't want to know what it is. You're going to try really hard to stay away from it. You don't want anybody talking about it because a surprise is meant to be experienced on a particular day in a particular moment. Who's like that? Who's somebody in the room that just will not ruin a surprise? Okay, I see you. Then there's the other type of person. It's a person like me. I love to ruin a surprise, right? I'm serious. I mean, if there's a present under the tree, and I, I've got to know what it is, right? It's sort of that, that anticipation, the not knowing. It makes the whole thing unbearable in, like, this really great way. How many of you, show of hands again, in your adult life, you have unwrapped a present that was under the tree and then wrapped it back up again so nobody knew. Anybody? Yeah, come on, my people. Where you at? Yeah? Surprises are great. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, surprise is one of the things that makes this time of the year so great. It makes being around little kids so much fun around holidays. Am I right? And parents, we, we live to see the faces of our children on Christmas Day. That sheer delight, that surprise. Here's why I bring this up. At the heart of the Christmas story is this big, fat, cosmic surprise. The God of the universe doesn't come with thunder and lightning. The God of the universe comes as a baby in a manger, a food trough for livestock. Who saw that coming? Totally unexpected. And we're calling this series Reveal. And what we're going to do is, is spend this season of Advent. Because, you see, for us as followers of Jesus, this time of the year isn't just about getting ready to celebrate a holiday. This is an entire season for us that we take seriously as we approach really one of the core truths of our faith. You know, uh, uh, during this season, we're not, not only celebrating the birth of Jesus, but I also think we're, we're carving out some room in our own lives to experience new birth ourselves. For us to be changed and transforms. We not only celebrate Christmas, but we experience it as well. Who, who wants a part of that? 
I mean, who wants a piece of that? To get, to get there and, and not just be surrounded by unopened, or, uh, unwrapped presents and, and, and wrapping paper everywhere, but to know that, man, I'm, I'm a bit more like Jesus than I was before all this started. Am I the only one that wants some of that? And so we're going to spend our, our weeks in Advent here in worship together confronting ourselves with the surprise of, of who Jesus reveals God to be. One of my favorite theologians, Terence Fritham, he says this, it is not enough that you believe in God. What is important, finally, is the kind of God in whom you believe. He said, I would argue that every single person believes in God. Even folks who say that they don't believe in God, that is a God of some sort. Here's what I mean by that. All of us hold to some sort of ultimate reality. There's, there's this core belief we have about what is true. And this influences the way that, that we understand the world. This influences how we understand ourselves. And ultimately, it shapes how we live our lives. Every single person has one of those. Everybody. Which is why Fritham says, what ultimately matters is not whether or not you believe in God. What matters is the kind of God you believe in. What's this God like? And as followers of Jesus, our core conviction, the thing that, uh, that identifies us as a Christian is that we believe the clearest picture we have of God is in Jesus Christ. That Jesus reveals to us who God is. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what the sort of ultimate reality that is holding all of this together, that gives it meaning? You look at Jesus. Now, the thing is, we tend to muck this up a bit, don't we? We tend to add all of these layers and these lenses to this. And so it influences and shapes how we see Jesus. You know, so, so many of us, we, we see Jesus through our own political lens. And so if we're Republicans, Jesus is a Republican. If we're Democrats, Jesus is a Democrat. We, we add our own stereotypes, our own cultural values. And, and so the next thing you know, Jesus is for all the things that we're for and against all the things that we're against. And for some of us, our, our understanding of God, our understanding of Jesus is impacted by, by experiences that we've had. Negative ones. And some of us in this room, our understanding of God has been incredibly damaged by, by how we were brought up, by the kind of home that we grew up in. We think of God, we think of our, of our parents, and that's not always a good thing, is it? And so like someone said one time that, that God made human beings in God's own image, and we return the favor. We recreate God in our own image. But what we're going to do throughout this series is, is we're going to spend some time peering over the manger, so to speak, and confronting ourselves with that surprise truth of who Jesus has actually revealed God to be. And my hope for all of us this morning is that we will come to discover, or maybe, you know what, rediscover, that the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ is a God who is ultimately for us. Now, before we get into the scripture, can we just spend one more moment in prayer together? Will you pray with me? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The prayer of this season is, is come, Lord Jesus, come. And so I pray that now. I ask you to come. Lord, I pray that you grant us the grace that we need to believe 
and to recognize that you're actually here right now, that you're among us. And Lord, I know that, that the message that I have to share this morning is important. It's a big one. It's something that we need to hear, not just once, but, but on a regular basis. But I also know that, that my words aren't enough. That what we need is your weight. We need your glory to drive them home. So please, Lord, lace every single word that comes out of my mouth with your grace. That it might penetrate our hearts. That it might leave us changed. Lord, bring to the front of our minds all the ways in which we we fail to actually trust that you're a God who's for us. And then, Lord, show us what it means to be people who are for the world that you love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. And what I want to do this morning is I want to spend some time, we're going to get deep, right? I want to spend some time really drilling in to the historical context in which Jesus was born, right? Sometimes we read this story and it has this sort of fable feel to it, but, but the reality is Jesus was born into a particular historical context. And what I mean is he was born in a real time, in a real point in history. And the more we can understand that, the more we can sort of put ourselves in that place, I believe the more the the real Christmas story, the message of what this whole season is about really pops and it really comes to life. So Luke chapter two, we're gonna start in verse one. In those days, Caesar Augustus, pizza, pizza. All right, this this area right here is way more awake uh, than the rest of you, or they just like corny jokes. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So Luke, the author, starts off this chapter by telling us about Caesar Augustus, who's at the height of his power as emperor of Rome. Now, Caesar Augustus is more than likely the the most celebrated emperor in Roman history. I mean, he's the guy who actually transformed Rome from a republic into an empire through this bloody civil war where he crushed all of his enemies and he consolidated all of the power to himself and declared himself to be Lord, which meant that in the Roman world, Caesar, as Lord, had the last word and the final say. He was the ultimate authority in that empire. Everybody listened to him, which is exactly what this census was all about. It was a demonstration of power. I mean, for us now, and nowadays, a census is when somebody sort of shows up at your door with a clipboard, right, and asks you a few questions, and, and you fill it out, and they go on their way. didn't work like that in the first century. See, in the first century, you had to go back to where your family was from. The Roman Empire was big. This required you to travel hundreds of miles, take time off of work. It would have been an incredibly expensive thing, and really, you know what it was about. It was about making sure everybody registered so that they could pay the appropriate taxes to Caesar. This was a flex of power. It's an incredible amount of power. 
One guy issues a decree, lifts his finger, and the entire Roman world has to respond out of fear. Because if they didn't, there were serious consequences. It's an incredible demonstration of power. Now, at the time of, of Augustus, the Roman Empire was huge. It was massive. We have a, a map just to show you a bit, a bit of an idea of how big this was. But it stretched all the way from Europe to Arabia and all the way to northern Africa. I mean, that's a huge empire. It's massive. In order to sort of maintain the order in this empire, Caesar Augustus came up with this great idea. He came up with a civil religion. It was known as the imperial cult, where Caesar was worshipped as one of the gods. This is what he did. He, he, he claimed that his father, his deceased father, was actually divine, right, which made him son of God. It's kind of clever, right? I mean, if you're trying to maintain order inside of this empire that's huge, well, what do you do? Well, the emperor is one of the gods, so you better be sure to, to do what he says and obey him. Otherwise, things, things aren't going to go well for you. And so there was all this propaganda, right, that, that, that the emperor started to put out there in order to get people to buy into this new civil religion. Temples were built all over the place throughout the empire. And these temples were famous for these choirs. They had these unbelievable choirs that would literally worship Caesar as one of the gods. He was called the son of God. He was hailed not only as Lord, but also as the savior of the world. And his birth and his reign were celebrated as good news, literally as gospel. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Any of this ringing a bell? Yes? You can shake your head. You can do something, yeah? It should sound familiar, right? Now, behind all of this is something that's known as Pax Romana, and it's Latin for the peace of Rome. So part of this propaganda was that Caesar, the son of God, the Lord, had brought peace to the world through military conquest, peace to the world through military victory. It's sort of how Rome worked. They'd roll up into a new territory, tell the people, hey, here's the deal. Join us, become a part of our empire, become a police state, pay our taxes, or we'll just kill you. We'll just wipe you out. How's that sound? So this is how Rome brought peace to the world. It was a peace that came about through violence. It was a peace that came about through fear, through coercion, through oppression. But keep all that in mind. This is the world that Jesus was born into. This is the context into which he came into the world. Now, with all that in mind, hold on to that, okay? And I want you to listen. Listen. We're going to go back to Luke chapter 2 to the words that the angel says to the shepherds. You out there still? Verse eight. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. I bring you gospel." That will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Did you hear that? This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
in the middle of an empire ruled by fear. You have an angel appearing to shepherds. Keep in mind, shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were social outcasts. Appearing to them, telling them to not be afraid. Did you hear that? Do not be afraid. The angel then goes on to announce that a baby has been born who is the Messiah, the true king, who is Lord. Hold on, wait, wait, wait. In the Roman world, who is, who is Lord? Who is Lord? Caesar. What are these angels saying? Hmm. A baby has been born who is Savior and who Lord, and whose birth is good news that is not cause for fear, but is cause for great joy for all the people. And then essentially, you have a choir. You have a choir of angels singing of the peace of God, not the peace of Rome, but the peace of God coming to earth. You see, this famous story in the book of Luke is not just a romantic picture of how Jesus was born. You know what it is? It's a subversive announcement that the true Lord has come to us and that the peace of God will not come about through fear, through violence, through oppression, but through self-giving love. Frederick Buchner he said it like this. He says, the incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Until we too have been taken by the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it. We have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. And at the heart of the Christmas story is a radical redefinition of what the world believes about who God is and about what we think power looks like. In light of that, two questions for this, us this morning. Two questions. The first one is this. What sort of God do you believe in? Like, what sort of God do you really believe in? Because we all have, like, a professed belief in God, right? If somebody were to ask you, you know, you're, as a Christian, what does that mean? What do you believe about God? You've got some answers you can rattle off. We've got a professed belief in God, but then the truth is we also have a revealed belief in God. That shows up more in how we live. And there's sometimes there's a contradiction there, isn't there? Often there's a contradiction between our professed belief and our revealed belief. I mean, a couple of examples. We, we, we believe, right, as Christians, that, that we believe in a God who's so eager to forgive us. But then why do some of us, I mean, we struggle to forgive anybody, especially ourselves. We believe in a God who's unbelievably generous, right, who, who has so much goodness and abundant and is willing to share it, but, but we're so tight with our own favor for other people. We, we live with this insecurity, this sense that there's, that there's never enough. Am I, am, I, am I speaking to anybody? Right, that often we have a professed belief and we have a revealed belief. Which kind of God do you believe in? You see, in the first century, it was so easy for people to believe that Caesar was God because that's what the gods looked like. The gods were big and powerful. They were Zeus, right? They had lightning bolts. And the thing is, man, they, they, they controlled things. They called the shots. And so if you, you wanted things to go well for, for you, then you better do whatever it takes to get them on your side. And people lived with this sort of deep-seated paranoia. I mean, how did you ever know? Were the gods on your side? Had you ticked them off? Had you made them angry? What sort of God do you believe in? And it's funny because we, we look back on all that and it seems sort of silly, right? Sort of archaic that people sort of worship these, these ideas of gods and they made sacrifices to them. But you know what? In my line of work, here's, here's what I'm coming to realize. Things aren't really all that different. 
we worship the same old gods. We just call them by different names. It's like this guy that I know that, that, that he, he works so hard. I mean, he, he, he throws himself into his work and he, and, he, and, he, and he just tries so hard to succeed. And it's all driven out of this effort to prove to his parents that he's worthy of their love and acceptance just as much as his older brother. Or it's the young people you run into who, who, who are cutting themselves. They're literally hurting themselves in order to deal with this pain that, 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 that happened to them, something that was said to them, something that was done to them. What sort, of, what sort of cloud has to be over somebody's heart and soul to think that that's how you have to go about things? Or it's the person that messed up a long time ago. Everybody involved has forgiven them. They just can't seem to forgive themselves. And so this past thing that they've done, it just continually sabotages their future. Listen, we all worship. We worship the same old gods. We just call them by different names. Trevor and I, when we were in college, we, we were on staff here doing student ministry, and we lived together at this house. And there's three of us, Trevor and I and another friend of ours. But we always had this, like, revolving roommate, right? This, this somebody who would always kind of be there for a while, and then they'd leave, and somebody else would come in. And I'll never forget this one guy who came to stay with us for a while. We're going to call him Jake. And Jake was actually a friend of a friend. And that guy contacted us and said, hey, you know, there's this guy that uh, is looking for a place to stay. He could use some positive influence in his life. Do you all have any room for him? And we weren't really sure about that positive influence part, but we did have an open room, right? So, yeah, sure, let Jake come and, come and stay with us. And so it was obvious right away that Jake had a past. On the one hand, anytime you, you ask him questions about, you know, life before he lived with us, he didn't really say much or, or he would change the subject really fast. Anytime, you know, we would talk about things of faith or we'd invite him to something at the church, he would just sort of blow it off and say something like, ah, oh, that stuff isn't, isn't, isn't for people like me. I'll never forget this one night. Trevor and I were on the roof of the house because some high school students had just toll papered us. This happened quite a bit, right? And high school kids came and toll papered our house and we got, got word that they were going to come back and sort of show it off to their friends. And so we got up on the roof of the house with a hose a jar of pickles, and some flour. I have no idea what we we're going to do with it, but it was going to be awesome, right? And so we're hanging out on top of the house, and all of a sudden, Jake pulls up. And as soon as he gets out of the car, it's obvious that he's wasted. He's had way too much to drink. And he sees up on the roof, and he thinks it's a good idea to come and join us, and we're like, no, 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 you know, and for like five minutes, it took him to get up the, uh, the roof of the house. It was terrifying. And so he comes up to there, and he sits down with us, and, and out of nowhere, he starts opening up about stuff. Starts talking to us, and he said things like, "I, I see this. I see this thing that y'all have, and, and and I want that, but I just don't think it's possible." And I'll never forget this one line that he said. He said, "The surest thing I know about God is that He's got a spot picked out for me in hell, right next to the devil." And what struck me as I thought about that is, it isn't that Jake didn't want anything to do with God, but somehow this guilt and this shame had convinced him that God didn't want anything to do with him. And I wonder for how many of us in this room, our story is some sort of variation of Jake's story. There's some misunderstanding, some broken picture of who God is that's keeping us from fully entrusting ourselves to the saving love of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? God doesn't look like your parents. God doesn't look like your failure. God doesn't look like your insecurity. God doesn't look like how you don't measure up. God looks like Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? 
God looks like Jesus. The clearest picture we have of what God looks like is Jesus in the manger and Jesus on the cross, which means this, that the God of the universe, the God that holds all of this together is a God who is for us. It's a God who is on our side. And like I said, this time of the year isn't just about celebrating a day on the calendar. It's about having an encounter, a real encounter with this same Jesus. It's about experiencing new birth in us. And I'm going to tell you right now, that will never happen unless we get this, unless we continually go back to this, that the God who holds all of this together is a God who is for us. And whenever there's some sort of insecurity, you got any of that? Some sort of insecurity, some sort of shame, some sort of guilt that's getting the best of us, at the core of that, sure, there's other issues involved, there's other steps to take, but at the core of that is some sort of misunderstanding of who God is. That the God that we really trust in doesn't look anything like Jesus. The good news of Christmas is that God doesn't look like Caesar but that God looks like Jesus. May we trust that more and more. May we really, truly trust that. You see, the Christmas story not only challenges our, our belief about who God is, the Christmas story also challenges what we believe about power. I mean, when God shows up to set the world right, how does God do it? With an army? With violence, with a tank, it comes as a baby, a helpless baby born in a food trough. The question I think we all need to wrestle with is what, what sort of power do we trust in? What sort of power do we truly trust in? I mean, this past week I was, uh, I was running in my neighborhood. I do that from time to time. It's really more of a trot, right? I was running, and I noticed this bumper sticker on a car, which when you run as slow as I do, you have, you have the opportunity to notice things. And so I noticed this bumper sticker on the back of the car, and I took a picture of it. This is what the bumper sticker was. If you can tell, it's, it's the word love spelled with a handgun, a hand grenade, some sort of knife, and a machine gun. I didn't get a chance to take a picture of the other side because that would have looked kind of weird. Um, but there was a Christian fish on the other side of the car. I'm not trying to condemn anybody or if this is a bumper sticker on the back of your car, I'm sorry, kind of. I have a really hard time understanding how these two things can sit by side, side by side. I mean, based on my convictions, love doesn't look like a machine gun. Love looks like a cross. Love looks like a manger. Love looks like God emptying himself. Love looks like self-giving, sacrificial love. You see, true power is not rooted in violence. True power is not rooted in fear or coercion or oppression. True power is rooted in self-giving, sacrificial love, which is why I have a big problem when the president of the largest evangelical university in the country stands up in front of his students right after one of these mass shootings and says to them, you know how we can stop all this? Is if more of us were willing to carry a gun. I don't have a problem with people owning guns, but I do have a problem with Christians buying into the lie that violence will ever bring about the peace of God. 
that violence will ever bring about the kind of change that God wants to bring into this world? What sort of power do you trust in? Power is not rooted in violence or fear or oppression. The most powerful force in the world is self-giving, sacrificial love. I'll prove it to you. Whose birthday are we still preparing to celebrate? Not Caesar's. Jesus Christ. And whenever we see this sort of power demonstrated in the world, you know what it does? It drops our jaw. I mean, it leaves us floored. Think back to Charleston. Y'all remember that, right? Awful thing happens in Charleston. And when the families of the people who were murdered offered forgiveness, and when that entire city held hands and linked across the bridge, what did the rest of the world do? One of my favorite thinkers said it like this, that when the world... When the church seems incomprehensible to the world, it's a good sign the church is getting it right. How should all of this influence the way that we celebrate Christmas? That's a great question, don't you think? I mean, God is ultimately for us. And one of the things that we discover in the midst of that is God is ultimately for the world. And around this time of the year, you hear people say things like, you know, you got to keep Christ in Christmas. You hear that a lot, right? And, and typically what we mean by that is, is that we're going to get mad at Starbucks for what they put or don't put on their coffee cups. We're going to get frustrated when people say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Never mind, holidays literally means holy days. But then we're going to go on and celebrate the holiday just like the rest of the world by spending a whole bunch of money on stuff that we don't really need. And so the true meaning of the incarnation gets buried underneath, you know, wrapping paper and credit card receipts. The average American family will add $1,000 worth of consumer debt to their, to their household for Christmas. Happy birthday, Jesus, right? You know what I say? I say this year we do something different. I say this year we practice Christmas in a way that honors who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. So something we're going to do together, and you're going to have an opportunity to participate in this, but we're going to take up a special offering on Christmas Eve, right? We're calling it the Advent offering. Now, I want to make it clear. This is separate from the, the, the general offering, okay? This is going to be a sacrificial gift that is above and beyond your tithe that is going to go towards a big birthday present for Jesus. And this money is going to be given to confront the hideous evil that is human trafficking, that is sexual slavery, the reality is there's some things that we shouldn't tolerate. There's some things that just simply aren't okay and that shouldn't happen on our watch. And people being bought and sold as sexual commodities is one of those things. And so this money is gonna be used, it's gonna be given to two strategic partners, one local partner, organization called Lighthouse for Life. Incredible people who are in the process of trying to get the state's first safe house, recovery home, open and off the ground for children who are being rescued out of human trafficking. Y'all, this is a real problem in our state. It's not across the world, it's right here. In fact, in October, 84 minors, 84 of them were rescued when a, when a ring was busted up. The youngest child rescued, the youngest victim rescued from that ring was three months old. That shouldn't happen. That should not happen. And so the, the, the other partner, the international partner, is actually in, in, in India. And a group of the church uh, had a chance to travel over there and see some of what God is, is doing there, what these people are doing. And it's, it's amazing. And the thing is, this, this issue is a bit different in places like India, where here in the United States, there's estimate around 100,000 children are, are caught up in human trafficking. In places like India, the estimate is 12.6 million children 
are involved in this. We need to be involved in both places. And these, these folks currently have a home where 160 children who have been abandoned live. And their goal is to open up a base, a home in, in Calcutta. Calcutta has the largest red light district in the entire, entire Asia. And this home is going to be focused on, on rescuing people out of, out of human trafficking and, and giving them a place to, to live, to recover. And you're going to have opportunities throughout Advent to hear more about how this money is going to be used uh, in, in, in these partnerships. And I encourage you to take advantage of those opportunities to learn more. But I'm telling you about this now so that you can prepare, so you can create some space in your life for God to birth a miracle through you to make a sacrificial gift on Christmas Eve that actually honors who Jesus is. And we got a big goal, folks. I'd love to see us raise $500,000. You heard me say it, $500,000. That much money would be enough to purchase the land in Calcutta, to build the facility, and to help fund an entire year of ministry at Lifehouse for Life. What do you say to that? I can't think of a better way to celebrate Christmas. And so over the next several weeks, I want to encourage you, get the whole family involved. Involve your children in this. Remind them, Christmas isn't about getting more stuff. We got more than enough. Christmas is about celebrating the unbelievable truth of who our God is, a God who is for us. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we just want to thank you for, for coming to us. Thank you for all the ways you rescue us. Lord, I pray that right now you begin to stir in our hearts Give us a sense of what it looks like for us to respond to the unbelievable good news that you've come into the world and you're still here and you're still involved and you're still working. Help us to join you, to partner with you in all the things that you're doing around us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.